Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Politics. I'm Tim Jones, and my guest today is Simon Schuster, author of The Showman, the inside story of the invasion that shook the world and made a leader of Vladimir Zelensky, published today by HarperCollins. Ukraine watchers have been waiting for the release of this book since Time magazine started teasing chapters in November, and before that, going all the way back to April 2022, when the magazine published Inside Zelensky's World, an account by Simon of two weeks hold up in the presidential compound, with Zelensky and his senior staff during the first months of the full-scale war. Born in Moscow but raised in California, Simon has reported from Russia and Ukraine for 17 years. Before joining Time magazine, he worked in the region for the Moscow Times, Reuters and AP. He first met Ukraine's war leader and his entourage when Zelensky ran for president in 2019 and clearly built enough trust to be granted wartime access at the highest levels. Based on conversations with Ukrainian principals on and off the record, including the president, his wife, their childhood friends, his chief of staff, his defence minister, his national security adviser, and the chief of staff of the armed forces, the showman provides a unique insight into the conduct of the war. Uh, So, Simon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be with you. Before we get to the meat of the book, can you tell us more about your Russian origins, your family's move to the US, and what it was that pulled you back to Russia? Uh, Yes, I was born in um, 1983 in the Soviet Union, in a suburb of Moscow, um, and my family um, moved to the United States as refugees in 89 when I was six years old. Um, our family is, you know, yeah, half Ukrainian, half Russian. My mom's side is, uh, her father is Russian. Her mom is Ukrainian, grew up in Kiev. My dad grew up in central Ukraine in Khmelnytsky, um, in a little Jewish shtetl that he loved to talk about. Uh, yeah, so when we when we moved, uh, settled in San Francisco, which is quite a contrast to Soviet Moscow of 1989, um, and I grew up in San Francisco, um, and there was quite a vibrant Russian-speaking community, mostly Ukrainian. Uh, I'd say the the plurality were from Odessa, actually, from from that one city, because um, mostly Jewish emigres, Jewish refugees coming um, in that wave in the early 90s. And uh, a lot of my friends growing up were Russian-speaking. Um, I, at home, we spoke Russian. So I had the language, um, which in journalism is absolutely priceless. So when I um, understood in college that I wanted to become a journalist, I also understood that my competitive advantage would be my language. So I um, set my sights on this English-language newspaper in Moscow called the Moscow Times. This was in 2006. Um, and I moved there, and uh, my interview, my job interview with the editor-in-chief, then editor-in-chief of the, of the Moscow Times, was about 30 seconds long. He said, do you, do you speak Russian? I said, yes. <laughs> he said, okay, move to Moscow, we'll teach you the rest. Um, so I, uh, I I had that advantage. I also had uh, relatives. I still have relatives um, in, around Moscow. And at the time, when I moved there in 2006, they they helped me kind of get settled and get my bearings. But yeah, that's, that's sort of the... Uh, the short version. Uh, and when did you leave Moscow? 
Um, I left in uh, 2013 um, uh, as a correspondent for Time Magazine. They moved me to Berlin to cover the European Union, um, but my, my focus remained on, on Eastern Europe, Russia, Ukraine. I continued traveling all the time. Um, I mean, 2014, I spent basically living in Ukraine because, uh, you know, there was the revolution and there was the annexation of Crimea, then the war in the Donbass. So um, I had an apartment that year in Berlin. That's where I was technically based. Um, but I was, I was in Ukraine the whole time. And how did you get your in into Zelensky world? Well, I mean, I, I've been covering Ukraine and Russia for 17 years now. Um, and uh, Zelensky is the third Ukrainian president I've interviewed and profiled um, in the presidential compound on Bankova Street. So when he announced his candidacy, um, it was quite a natural thing for me to tell my editors, hey, there's this um, comedian, he's running for president, and uh, he's gaining in the polls pretty fast. We shouldn't ignore his campaign. And, and they found it kind of a, like a funny story. So they um, agreed to send me down there. Um, I uh, profiled him during his campaign. Uh, and backstage of his comedy show, um, I met a lot of his friends, advisors, fellow comedians, uh, who then moved with him into the presidential administration when he won the elections in the spring of 2019. So that allowed me to, um, you know, continue staying in touch with them. Um, I, I developed some relationship uh, during the campaign um, when they were very, very new to politics. And then as they continued to govern, um, I stayed in close touch with them. I continued writing articles about Ukrainian politics, about Zelensky's administration, about his his failures, his successes. Um, and that put me in, in quite a unique position when the invasion started to come to him and say, you know, look, you know me, I know you. I, I would like to write a book about what's happening here. Um, you know, uh, what do you think? And and are you open to that? And, you know, he was, I wouldn't say super enthusiastic, but he's like, yeah, I mean, this, somebody should. And said, yeah, I know you, so go for it. And it was, the conversation was kind of like that. It, was, it wasn't very like detailed or enthusiastic on his part. I mean, you clearly had extraordinary access and, and you, you also clearly have sympathy towards Zelensky, but you're not uncritical. And for example, you praise him as, quote, brave to the point of recklessness. Yeah. But you also call him, quote, again, stubborn, confident, vengeful, and impolitic. And towards the close of the book, you express this nagging worry that power may become addictive for him. Uh, how has this gone down in Kyiv? I mean, it depends who you ask, I guess. Um, th there are uh, certainly people on social media, you know, I, I see their, their remarks and comments, who seem to believe that any criticism, any diversion from the kind of official government line of how, how the war is going is seen to, to some of these people online as some kind of betrayal. So th there are opinions like that, you know, that that's that's fine. I think it's a bit a bit sad that the discourse in Ukraine has come to that, that it's so black and white, that any criticism is seen as verging on treason or, or sympathy for Russia or something like that, right? Uh, but I'd say, you know, in, in the presidential administration, they're grownups, they know who I am, they never had any illusions that I was working for them or part of their team. They, they know I'm an independent journalist. My articles, while writing the book, I was publishing articles, some of which were, were critical of, of him. Um, sometimes they didn't like those articles and, and you know, or there would be strains in our relationship and I would feel that they were kind of pushing me out for a couple of weeks here or there. Um, but, you know, that's part of the working process. They, they, they respect my work. They know my work. They knew my work going into this project. My articles... Uh, about Zelensky's administration from the very beginning were not all rosy. Um, and, and I certainly also gave the microphone to many of his uh, enemies, political enemies, 
um, in in Ukraine, and he didn't always like that. But you know, that's he, but he he he's he's mature enough <laughs> um, and has enough respect for for journalism to to um, you know not close me out. I mean, I noticed when you when the teaser came out in November in time, you got a lot of pushback from some Ukrainians. We'll come back to that because that's actually relevant to, towards the end of the book. But for now, let's go back to the opening chapter and your account of the first night of the invasion and the first days are really compelling. How Zelensky rushed back into the city, the key role of the Speaker of Parliament, and there's one vignette of one of his senior staff saying goodbye to his wife. Both of them believe it's going to be forever. Can you paint us a picture of the, those first few hours and days? Oh, it was very chaotic, very frightening. Um, there, there was no real plan. Um, they were winging it, uh, and you know, as, as I write in the book, yeah, he he learned about the invasion the morning of before sunrise, um, and he rushed to the uh, offices there on Bankova Street in the government district of Kiev, just because that's the seat of presidential power. So he felt that. You know, if he's going to be a wartime leader, he's got to be in his office there <laughs> um, where he belongs. And he told his aides to, to go to the same place. Some of them were expecting when they arrived an organized evacuation. Some of them arrived with their families and their luggage in their cars outside. And, you know, to, to uh, some of these advisors, I mean, to, to all the ones who wanted to leave, uh, Zelensky's position was basically you know, that's fine um, as long as you ask for permission and as, as long as your your intention is to get your family out and then come back to work. That, that was sort of the, the idea. And, and a lot of people did that. Half of the government, half of the ministers in the government left to Western Ukraine to establish a kind of um, base of operations for, for the government just in case, uh, you know, Kiev were to fall. Uh, but yeah, I, I spoke to a lot of people who were there. There were a lot of dramatic moments that they described. You know, uh, Andrei Sibika, uh, you mentioned him saying goodbye to his wife. That was one. Um, I think the most dramatic that I was able to come across in my reporting was actually um, with uh, one of Zelensky's dear friends, Denis Malastirsky, who was the Minister of Interior, uh, Minister of Internal Affairs, and he was in charge of the, the police and the border guards and the National Guard. Um, he was tragically killed in January 2023, about a year into the invasion, in a helicopter crash, an accident. Um, and uh, his his family and and his his associates in the ministry um, uh, got videos from his phone after he was killed, uh, videos that he taped of himself saying goodbye to his family, and he wanted to have these recordings with him just in case he knew he was about to be killed so he could send them and, and have a goodbye to his family and his young children. Um, and his his wife shared those recordings with me and allowed me to describe them and quote from them. I mean, heart-wrenching to watch. I, I got to know Malasidisky while reporting this book, you know, seeing him in those videos he made. And he just addresses his children. He says, I love you. Um, he gives them some advice about, you know, how, how they should grow up. Um, and, you know, these, these kinds of moments were playing out uh, across the administration because, yeah, I mean, realistically, they had very good reason to fear that they would all be killed. It's interesting what you write about uh, Zelensky, though, that um, you say that until the final hours, he, he didn't believe that this could happen. And that certainly comes across in your description of that first night. And yet, Alexei Danilov, his national security advisor, was almost relieved when the missile started flying because he'd been expecting it for so long. And the American intelligence was very clear. Mm-hmm. Is Zelensky... T- just temperamentally optimistic, or do you think he was reassured by Chancellor Schultz and and President Macron, or both? Um, yeah, both, both. I think he is temperamentally optimistic. I, I think he was just not inclined to believe 
that in the 21st century that you know this was possible in the center of Europe, this kind of genocidal war of aggression to take over an entire country of 44 million people. It's just, it's just phantasmagorical. Like, it just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't compute. Yeah. So yes, I mean, he chose to believe um, among the range of intelligence that was presented to him, the more optimistic scenario. The Americans were presenting the most extreme scenario of what we saw in, in, in the end, a uh, full-scale invasion with Kiev being the main target and Zelensky being the main target. Um, I think other intelligence services, including the Ukrainians, were predicting, uh, uh, in, in the Ukrainian military, were, were predicting more likely there would be an attack from the east, an escalation in eastern Ukraine, where there had been a simmering war uh, for um, eight years by that point. Um, they expected it to come from there, and, and they actually you know, relocated some troops that were based in Kiev and uh, to the east uh, in the lead up to the invasion, because that's where they expected the Russians to come from. Um, so yeah, Zelensky, um, you know, uh, he did get some reassurances from uh, President Macron of France, uh, Chancellor Scholz of Germany, who both spoke to Putin in the hours and days before the invasion. Putin told them that he would not invade. He was lying to the world. He was lying to everyone. Um, and they, but they passed those uh, assurances along to Zelensky, um, and you know, uh, I think that gave him a, a chance to believe that things would not be as bad as the Americans predicted. But the American intelligence was clairvoyant, right? I mean, uh, and you you have this little throwaway line, which I haven't seen anyone pick up, but it, it jumped out at me, where you quote someone as saying that they had their very own Cardinal of the Kremlin, which is from this Tom Clancy book. And in that case, the Cardinal of the Kremlin was a personal aide to the defense minister. So I, I wondered, obviously you can't say who told you that, but... Do you suspect this was a double bluff on you to try and cause dissent within the Russian government? Uh, no, I don't think so, because that that conversation, that interview was uh, at the time. So this this was um, well before, in m months before the invasion started, when the Americans began making these predictions. Um, uh, so this, this wasn't a, a person, an official, um, remembering these things about a, a supposed, you know, uh, American mole inside the Kremlin. He wasn't remembering these things after the fact. This was a conversation, kind of a, f a fresh one. And, and I think that that's one of the things that makes the book stand out. O the reporting was kind of in real time. Um, it was it was done in many cases before the Ukrainians or anyone had a chance to kind of establish a narrative of of um, what they will say happened, you know, <laughs> looking back with hindsight. So uh, I think that that gives the the reporting, um, I hope, an immediacy that that will be hard to to replicate, you know, in, in the future for historians who study this war. Um, but th that was a case in point. This this was someone talking to me at the time who was having these conversations with the Americans, and he's like, "Yeah, they have this. They have the source. They say they have the source, so they say we should believe them uh, because they have this, you know, high up source in the Kremlin." But nevertheless, this person and I'd say the bulk of the administration around Zelensky did not believe the Americans. No. Yeah. Some of the flow in the wall stuff is is really great. I mean, I love books like that. And, and I want to pick up one particular chapter, which is the conversations you clearly had with uh, the chief of the general staff, Valerie Zaluzhny. Yeah. And uh, there's so much in there, but let's go first with his initial wartime contacts with his U.S. counterpart, Mark Milley. Yeah. Uh, the blizzard twenty. 22 faint and mm. his his campaigns of misdirection even with his own government and with the americans can you talk us through that 
it, it's it's a complicated picture. I'm I'm not sure I'll be able to do it justice here, but you know, there's quite a quite a few pages devoted to to yeah. tracing the arc of this. But to to really simplify it, General Zaluzhny in the lead up to the invasion was advocating for a more uh, fulsome preparations, mobilization of reservists, um, barricading and and um, fortifying the borders with Russia in the north, especially, um, and and stockpiling reserves uh, of uh, material, including uniforms, food, you know, ammunition, things like that. Um, and the message he was getting, as he described it, from the, the president and the presidential staff was, okay, you can get prepared, but do it quietly. Don't panic people. Um, and General Zaluzhny was quite frustrated with this, but you know also understood that he answers to the, the civilian leadership. So he said he was preparing, but he was doing it under these kind of, as he called them, political restrictions and looking for loopholes to prepare without causing panic. One of the things they did was move around um, military equipment uh, at night rather than during the day so that there was less of a chance of people seeing it, taking taking uh, videos on their phones and posting it online that might scare, scare the public. Um, anyway, the blizzard uh, 2022 military exercises that were of, of officially announced in Ukraine. They involved tens of thousands of Ukrainian servicemen. Uh, they, uh, as Zaluzhny as explained to me, was um, yeah, they were an opportunity for him to move forces into position um, with a cover story, right? We're just doing exercises. These exercises have long been planned. On the Facebook page of the general staff, they put some very innocuous sounding reason for these exercises. So nothing to see here kind of approach. In reality, they were they were moving forces into position, in many cases hiding them so that the Russian attack could not catch soldiers asleep in their beds and their garrisons, um, and they could not catch uh, the, the most valuable and important air defenses and other military equipment in their usual bases. So there's a, there's a wonderful quote that I love from General Zaluzhny um, in the book. He said something to the effect of, we needed the enemy to believe that we were um, in our usual bases, um, smoking grass, posting on Facebook and watching TV. <laughs> that was Which the point. I normally do, right? <laughs> I mean, I don't know, but he didn't, he didn't go that far. But that was that was the, that was the strategy, yeah, and and it was successful because you know the Russians began their invasion with a massive aerial bombardment and artillery bombardment of um, strategic uh, sites, command posts, um, air defense uh, locations, uh, military bases, um, and you know I, I think uh, that decision and that strategy on the part of General Zaluzhny, um, does, he deserves a lot of credit for um, the the survival of. The, the Ukrainian military, uh, their ability to survive that initial wave of the attack and, and then to start pushing back. Is he always that open with reporters or was, was this unusual? Um, unusual. Unusual. I mean, I, th I think at, at that point, I, yeah. So uh, I guess you're asking about my, my access to General Zaluzhny and how, yeah. how that works. Um, so I, I uh, happen to be quite close with uh, his uh, aide-de-camp, so his, his right hand, um, his aide was also quite a prominent character in the book, uh, Alexei Naskov, um, who's a, a colonel there in, in the Ukrainian armed forces. Uh, I knew Naskov for a long time. I mean, yeah, more than a year before the invasion. Um, you know, we stayed in touch. And when the invasion started, he was the main aide, the chief aide to um, General Zaluzhny when it came to information warfare um, and, you know, kind of publicity. 
Um, so when the general finally decided to give an interview, when he finally found time in his schedule to, to, to do that, he was, of course, inundated with interview requests. Um, when he finally decided, okay, fine, 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 I'll, I'll talk to someone, um, uh, Naskov called me. Um, and in the beginning of the interview, and I quote this in the book, Zaluzhny uh, said, you know, I'm going to tell you all this once and then I'm not going to tell it again. Um, so he wanted to get it on the record, you know, what happened. But uh, he didn't show any desire to like do a kind of a media tour and start going on TV. That was not his thing. He didn't particularly like that. It may be my ignorance, but until I read your book, I didn't see such a direct link between the fall of Medvedchuk and mm. Putin's decision to give up on his campaign of influence and destabilization and go for mm -hmm. go for all that war. Is that something that's been missing in other accounts? Is this something that you learned during the research of the book, or is it something you always knew? Thank you so much for asking that question. <laughs> because I think, you know, historically speaking, one of the main contributions of the book to the historical record of how we got here is that chapter about Medvedchuk and, and how the crackdown against Medvedchuk, who's, you know, Putin's closest ally in Kiev, the crackdown against Putin's closest ally in Kiev angered Putin very much in the lead up to the invasion. And I would argue you know, at least coincided with his decision to invade. I, I don't, I can't uh, gaze into Putin's soul and tell you exactly what he was thinking, but, you know, the crackdown on his friend in Kiev, Medvedchuk, uh, the, the, the main um, kind of attack against uh, Medvedchuk and his TV channels and so on came less than two days before the Russians began massing troops at the border. Could be a coincidence. I don't think so. So um, I, uh, I knew about that when it was happening. I interviewed Medvedchuk um, at the time that that he you know uh, faced these these uh, attacks against his political party in Ukraine and his assets and so on, I interviewed him in Kiev um, and I published a story um, a few weeks before the invasion started that that had most of this material. Um, you know, it, it got pretty um, uh, significant attention, I would say, but um, I, I do think that it's missing from people's understanding of. of how we got here, um, and I think um, I, I'm quite happy with that chapter. Um, you know, it goes deep into the weeds of of the the lead up to the invasion from the uh, the perspective of kind of Russian Ukrainian relations and and the intricacies of, of politics in both countries. Uh, but it's important to understand, and and I do think it, it gives an important um, layer of understanding. Uh, you know, why the war began. Well, and here's a, here's a similar one that again I. I don't feel has been addressed by other uh, other accounts, which is this idea that the Ukrainians turned down a peace deal in Istanbul. Now, I know this has come up recently. Yeah. Uh, and But I've read in other books that, that it was Bucha that killed these negotiations. But you write about your astonishment that Zelensky, until the last hour, gave Putin the benefit of the doubt. Mm. Yeah, I think Bucha was, was a, a key factor. You know, history rarely has you know, just one explanation for why history turns one way or the other. It's usually a mix of factors. So um, the, the reason that the Ukrainians uh, essentially stopped um, the negotiation process with the Russians, there, there, there are a number of explanations for that. Bucha is one, when they saw the atrocities that Russians had committed um, in, in Bucha and other uh, parts of the Kiev region, when the Russians withdrew from that region in the, in the very beginning of April 2022, um, these atrocities came to light they horrified and sickened uh, Zelensky and his aides. And indeed, his aides began telling him, boss, we can't negotiate with these monsters. We have to stop the negotiations. Zelensky, for his part, um, 
continued pushing them to no, continue the negotiations. I know this is horrific. I know this is genocide, but we cannot miss an opportunity to end this war if, if even if it's, if it's a small one. Uh, I think one factor that that people miss uh, and, and that I outline in the book in, in some detail that contributed to this decision to to halt negotiations at that time, and this was all happening in the course of about two weeks. So, you know, you, the book gives you the kind of chronology of how this happened. Um, what happened was uh, Ukraine began winning. It began winning on the battlefield. You know, the, the, the Russians withdrew from Kiev not as a humanitarian gesture of goodwill, but because they were defeated by the Ukrainians. Uh, at the same time... Uh, a, a lot more Western weaponry began arriving that also gave a boost to the Ukrainian sense that, hey, maybe we could win this thing on the battlefield. Let's see how far we can push it. Um, we have the momentum, right? Uh, there were a couple of other incidents. One is the arrest of uh, Viktor Medvedchuk, Putin's closest friend. Uh, that was a major boost to morale. It, it's hard to explain why that was so important psychologically for for Zelensky and his team without understanding more about Medvedchuk. I, I don't think we have time to go into that here, but you know, I, I would really encourage people to read about that in the book. Um, and the other thing was, uh, a big one was the sinking of the Moskva. I believe that was, um, I don't want to get that, but it was the, either the 11th or the 14th of April, 2022. That was the flagship of the Russian Black Sea Fleet. A pair of Ukrainian-made missiles, Neptune missiles, um, sank that ship. Um, and that was, you know, an enormous boost to morale. I mean, uh, huge, huge victory, a symbolic victory. You know, it's not going to end the war, but but it showed again the Ukrainians that hey, we maybe we're not as weak as we thought. Maybe we don't really need to to uh, grant these enormous concessions that the Russians are asking for. Let's see how far we can push this on the battlefield. So that is a factor that I think is important to understand. Uh, you know, why the negotiations then in April of 2022 broke down. A key part of your book is, I mean, you talk about his pre-political life and his his acting troupe and his, his his comedy and so on. You stress that when he was running for office, he was running as a uniting figure. He was a Russian speaker from the industrial heartlands, and he felt he could he could speak to both sides. And he and he he came into office intending to end the war in the east, and yet he's ended up as this wartime leader. Hmm. And this, of course, explains the the title of the book that that you 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 feel he's found his moment as a showman. Uh, I'd say so. Yeah, I mean, the, the title of the book points to the fact that his showmanship has been his superpower, um, in over the course of the invasion. Um, he he recognized very early in the in the opening moments hours of the invasion that you know Ukraine would not survive without massive Western support. If that was clear even before the invasion. Um, that they needed to keep the world uh, on Ukraine's side. So in order to do that, he needed to to grab and hold the attention of the world to win the sympathy of the world. And I argue in the book that um, his skills as a showman, as a as someone extremely well versed in, um, you know, building narratives, um, con- constructing narratives, and and controlling what we see on our screens. Uh, this was an, an, an instrumental uh, part of his success as a wartime leader. It was instrumental to Ukraine's success because it allowed him to speak not only through these kind of secure line telephone channels to um, foreign leaders, but to really win the hearts and minds of uh, of the people who elected those leaders in foreign democracies across the Western world, you know, countries like Japan, Australia, everywhere. Uh, he spoke directly to the people um, and he, he used his skills as, as an actor, as a showman, uh, to do that, to 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 draw on their emotions, to make them feel this war, as he put it, uh, as as their own, uh, not some 
you know, territorial dispute somewhere at the edges of Europe, but really as, as a war for all the values that uh, the world's democracies espouse. Um, so that that's why I think he's a showman. He was a showman for 20 years before he became president. And, and that those that set of skills is just fundamental to his character and it's fundamental to his success as a leader. You clarify early on that he and Zeluzhny came to a division of labor. Uh, mm -hmm. So yeah. Zelensky was out, you know, selling the war abroad, getting weapons, getting uh, political support. Well, Zeluzhny was running the war. But yeah. then it, it's clear that then he started to feel more confidence and there were differences over strategy. How bad did it get? And is there any danger, do you think, that Zeluzhny could actually be replaced while the war is ongoing? Yes, there is that danger. Um, I, I think the, the you know, I, I, I don't know if there's a consensus in the president's office, but but many people around the president understand full well how destabilizing and dangerous that would be. Um, but I, I think that that risk remains um, that that um, uh, President Zelensky would change the military leadership in the middle of a war. So the the relationship there between Zeluzhny and Zelensky is uh, really at the center of the book. I follow it uh, very closely for you know th throughout the, the chapters, um, and, and you see the the evolution um, of the relationship. In the beginning of the invasion, um, you know, uh, President Zelensky talked to me and talked in general about the, uh, uh, about Zeluzhny in such admiring, glowing terms. Uh, you know, almost as a savior of the country. I, I um, happened to sit in on a, a telephone conversation that President Zelensky had um, with General Zeluzhny. And just the respect in his voice when he addressed the general was was really some something I, I remember very very clearly, and I, I thought it was quite important. He he really let the general do the fighting because he knew that um, you know Z Z Zelensky knew that he didn't have the the, the strategic know how to do this. Um, and indeed, General Zeluzhny was very successful. Um, he won the Battle of Kiev and so on. So, um, in in that early period, Zelensky didn't interfere. Um, all he uh, asked, the main things he asked the generals was, what do you need? How can I help you? What support can I provide? What should I ask the Western leaders, the international leaders, to, to get you the help that you need? Over time, what you see in the book, uh, and you know, I'm, I'm summarizing um, events that are described in some detail there, but w over time what you see is <clears throat> President Zelensky develops a level of confidence in his own um, understanding of military strategy and a set of military priorities about what needs to happen on the battlefield, when to attack, where to attack, how to use resources. Um, and, and those priorities did not always align with those of the general. They, they took a somewhat different approach to, to you know, how to wage the war. Uh, and that led to tensions. Uh, that led to disagreements. Um, and I think fundamentally that's that's the reason why their relationship has, has not been uh, great um, in, in recent months. Well, I mentioned earlier the, the Time magazine cover in November and how controversial it was. And it was the first piece, there have been a few since then, it was the first piece I felt that really floated the idea that there is some war weariness in Ukraine and perhaps the beginnings of there being a ceasefire settlement. How and when do you think this war will end, even temporarily? I get that question a lot. Um, I, I always try to dodge it. I'll be, I'll be straight <laughs> with you because I work in the, the present and the recent past as a journalist. I I really try to avoid prognostication. I'm terrible at it. Um, I, I I was wrong in predicting that Russia would not annex Crimea in 2014. 
I was wrong in predicting that Russia would not invade full-scale invasion in 2022. So I'm bad at prognostication. Uh, what I do is is tell you what happened, and you can make your own decisions about who's the good guy, who's the bad guy, <laughs> and what's going to happen next. So um, with, with that caveat, um, I can say that uh, Zelensky is in no mood to negotiate, um, and he is uh, attempting in recent months... Um, I'd say starting in the summer of 2023 for sure, uh, to kind of hedge his bets against the possibility that the West uh, Western support would continue to decline um, and possibly be cut off completely uh, if and when President, or former President Trump is reelected in the United States. So the way they're preparing for that is uh, a, a, a massive focus and huge investments in domestic arms production. Um, that's their kind of plan B. Uh, Zelensky, in, in a quote recently to the Associated Press, he said, this is the way out. The way out meaning of the conundrum of how will you sustain the war if the West continues to, to, to curtail its support? This is the way out. So domestic production of arms. They've had an enormous amount of success, I, I think. Um, and we, we see that success in the dramatic attacks against uh, Russian targets in Crimea and deep inside Russian territory from Bielhurad to, to Moscow to Sochi, you know. Those drones that you remember struck the Kremlin in the spring of 2023, um, those were Ukrainian-made drones, um, and that's that's quite a, that's quite an achievement. So uh, they're also building missiles. So all of which is to say that you know is the war moving to a negotiation? Um, I think Zelensky doesn't is not ready for that, um, and he is uh, looking for ways to sustain the fight, to stay in the fight, even if. Someone like Donald Trump comes in and tries to pressure him um, to negotiate. Uh, Zelensky does not like to be pressured. You know, he, as I write, he's very stubborn. Um, he does not like to be pushed around. Talking to politicians and military off the record, as you do, do you think they really want this this wasteland that's in the east now and that the gangster state? Do they really want that back? I can understand why they would want Crimea back and that they would worry about. You know, the Russians would feel emboldened having taken over twenty percent of the territory. But yeah, I mean, you know, I I can only tell you what what they tell me repeatedly in, in our conversations, um, and and I I believe them that they see and and first and foremost, President Zelensky that freezing the war, giving up parts of the territory, and then freezing the front line somewhere uh, in, in eastern Ukraine or, or the south would would only delay. The inevitable. It would give Russia a chance to regroup, rearm, um, uh, to build up, build up its forces for another attack. That will they expect again attempt to take over the entire country, unseat Zelensky, take take over the capital. They they uh, don't see Putin's war aims changing. Putin indeed has made pretty clear in some of his recent public statements that uh, he still intends to kind of fit finish what we started, um, for what the Russians started. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, so, um, I, I think that is basically where, where their, their heads are at. Um, I think they, they want to keep pushing as long as they can and to regain momentum. So, so that if they do end up in a negotiation, it's from a position of strength mm -hmm. and not on the back foot. Okay. Well, final question. You, you write about the, what you call the return of politics, Mm -hmm. uh, and this has become even more so since you finished the book with the oh, yeah. criticisms coming from Mayor Klitschko and the feud, yeah. which yeah. seems unending between Zelensky and, and Poroshenko. Yeah. With the caveat that you don't like to predict, where does this go next, do you think? 
Um, I don't know. I mean, in, in the in the final uh, in the epilogue to the book, I, I sort of point to the concerns that I have um, about what Ukraine will look like after the war, after what I certainly hope will be its its victory in this war. What kind of Ukraine will that be, and what kind of leader will will Zelensky be? You know, how how strong are his uh, uh, is is his democratic DNA? Um, how easy will it be for him to, for example, give uh, private uh, tycoons back control of their media, uh, their television channels, and tell them, okay, you can criticize me now, go for it, you know, knock yourself out. How easy will it be for him to return to a competitive political playing field where his his enemies are are, are you know free and emboldened to to attack him? That'll be tough. You know, in our conversations, he said that is his intention. Um, you know, he he puts it very clearly and bluntly, and, and he has a good point that un, at a time of war, the country is under martial law. That is a, a legally that is a legal document. It's it's uh, it's defined in law, and it forbids it forbids uh, elections under martial law. It uh, gives the state full control of the airwaves um, to to wage the information war. So he says. When war ends in our victory, we will lift martial law and we'll go back to democracy uh, as normal. But we ain't done yet. The war is still ongoing. So stop talking to me about <laughs> about freedom of the press and and uh, and you know um, competitive elections. Read the text of martial law and you'll see where we stand. Um, so that's basically his position. Um, you know, time will tell. I, I I don't know. I remain somewhat concerned, but but I'm also um, uh, heartened by. Uh, for one thing, you know, not to overestimate my role in history here, but for one thing, the fact that uh, Zelensky allowed me, um, an independent journalist, to get the access that I had and, and to to write a, a book that he still, from what I understand, hasn't read. He never asked to see it. He never asked for any kind of approval. He said, yeah, go for it. You know, knock yourself out. Um, so that shows a certain commitment to um, independent journalism for which I'm really grateful and and which I have to acknowledge is is a good sign of his kind of democratic uh, bona fides, um, but we'll see. You know, it's it's an open question. History shows that that's always a very difficult and fraught transition from absolute power back to uh, you know democratic competition. Um, that's tough for anybody. Yeah. Well, to end the interview, uh, since this is a podcast about books, as usual, I've asked my guest to recommend two, one broadly in the same field and one personal choice. So, Simon, what have you chosen? I mean, the, the book that I had, this may be a boring choice, but uh, the book that I had on my desk um, while writing it uh, was Lenin's Tomb by David Remnick, uh, the, the book about the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, you know, because he had that that kind of uh, incredible access to the people involved in the final days of the Soviet Union, Gorbachev and, and, and so on. And, and, you know, his descriptions were, if, if uh, your listeners haven't read that book yet, it's it's very illuminating um, and it, it served as a kind of guide Um guide to me uh, in, in writing the book, I guess, stylistically and in the journalistic approach that, that Remnick took uh, to that book. Um, I'm also uh, a big fan and recently um, reread um, uh, Midnight in Chernobyl by uh, Adam Higginbottom, um, which uh, is, is really a, a deep dive and an amazing work of um, journalism as reconstruction. So, you know, Adam was not present for the Chernobyl disaster of 1986 um, but he he make he takes you there man he really you feel like you're in the room you can smell the radiation 
Um, and that's, that's a really important skill that I, I learned a lot from because I was not in the bunker in those first days of the invasion. You know, I reconstructed the, like those, those critical, some of those critical moments that are in the book, many of them I witnessed and I was there for them, but a lot of them, you know, especially the ones down in the bunker, um, I, I had to reconstruct them from people's, um, from interviews, from people's recollections. And, and Adam does that so effectively from his interviews, from archival material. So I, I, I love that book and it's, a, it's been a great lesson to me in, in how, to, how to do those kinds of reconstructions that make, make the reader feel like they're there, you know, they're, they're present for these historic events. Today, I've been talking to Simon Schuster about The Showman, published today by HarperCollins. Simon, thank you again for coming on. Thank you so much. It's been great.